0: The year was 1914. German troops were engaged in heated battle and exchanging heavy fire with the allied forces of Russia and France and Great Britain. It was just five months into the four-year-long World War I, which would go on to claim over nine million lives. But on one day, the war stopped. Just, a, just after midnight on December 25th, 1914, German troops ceased firing their guns and began singing Christmas carols. Hearing the strange sound of melodious voices instead of violent weapons on the war field or the battlefield, Allied forces were initially cautious. They thought this was a grand trap. But seeing the Germans then cross enemy lines unarmed with no guns and with no bombs and exchange, not gunfire, but those German troops cross enemy lines and and instead exchange greetings of Merry Christmas. Allied troops soon joined them in singing carols and rejoicing and even exchanging makeshift gifts right there on. Though it only lasted one day, it was a remarkable scene and one that historians have gone on to label the Christmas truce of 1914. So, friends, this morning i are going to go back a little further than 1914 to another remarkable day in history when a far greater force crossed over into enemy lines to declare the first and most important Christmas truce. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter three? And this morning we'll look at verses sixteen and seventeen together. John chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. If you're using one of the Bibles under the cheers, you can find it on page eight eighty-eight, eight eighty-eight. John chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. These verses, perhaps the most famous in all the Bible, come in the context of a conversation. A man named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jewish religious party of the Pharisees, approaches Jesus at night wanting to know something about Jesus' identity, of his true identity. He's seen Jesus do some miraculous works, works that testify that he was a great man, a godly man, Nicodemus claimed that we, we know because of what you've done that God is with you. But that was as far as Nicodemus could see. Here was a religious man, Nicodemus, seemingly recognizing another religious man, Jesus, but Jesus used this occasion as an opportunity to open Nicodemus' eyes to a greater reality about God, a greater reality about humanity, and a greater reality about eternal life. You see, Nicodemus came as a religious man, but he was not righteous. He had his religion, but he was not right with God. Nobody is. And Jesus was meaning to show what God had done to make us right with him. That's the backdrop behind these two verses that we just read. Friends, that's the backdrop behind Christmas. Christmas it's all about showing us what God has done to make us right with him, what God has done to bring a truce in our war against him. And so briefly over the next few moments, from these two incredibly famous, well-known verses, I want to meditate on three divine actions in our human response. So four points this morning as we meditate on this text together. Number one, God loves. Number two, God gives. Number three, God saves. Number four, we must believe. All right, this is going to be a very simple message from a simple passage. We're going to just kind of pull these things right out of the text. But these are life-transforming truths. Number one, God loves. Number two, God gives. Number three, God saves. And number four, we must believe. Number one, God loves. Verse 16 starts off, for God so loved the world. Never has a subject been so much greater in proportion than an object. The subject in this sentence, the main character is God, the good, perfect, all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-sovereign creator and Lord of the universe. The object in this sentence is the world, representing the world system and all people who make it up like you and me, naturally rebellious against God, naturally hateful of God, naturally disrespectful of God, disillusioned with God, dissatisfied with God, dismissive of God. But you know, for a sentence to work, most of you who have taken English classes or some of you English teachers especially know for a sentence to work, it needs a verb to complete it. That subject must act upon that object for that sentence to work. And not only has there never been a subject so much greater than an object in all the sentences ever written, never has there been an action by a subject upon an object as astonishing as the one we find here in John chapter 3, verse 16. I mean, considering the character of the subject, the holy God, and the character of the object, the sinful, wicked world, constantly rebelling against that God, then you'd expect the action of the sentence to be quite different than what we find here. We'd expect a different verb to be supplied to the subject. We'd expect John 3.16 to read something like, God so hated the world, or God so condemned the world. Or God so judged the world. Or God so rightly destroyed the world. But the passage tells us that God so loved the world. See here the expansiveness of God's love. God's love is not limited to language. He he doesn't just love Hebrew speakers or English speakers or Spanish speakers. His love is not restricted by race. God's love isn't exclusive to ethnic Israel, as many ancient Jews thought. Or to whites only, as many white supremacists assert. Or to black people, as some sects of black-skinned people today claim. Complexion plays no part in God's affection. God's love leaps beyond socioeconomic classes. Poverty and riches don't pull at God's heartstrings disproportionately. He loves the entire world. But as one theologian noted, more striking than the breadth of God's love. Because the world is so big is the depth of God's love because the world is so bad. I mean, consider how the Bible describes the world, describes us. In Romans chapter 1, it says the world is full, full filled with all manner of unrighteousness with all manner of evil and covetousness and malice. Romans 1 says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They create ways to do wrong. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If that didn't catch you, let's look at other passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1 talk about the world, talk about you and me using these kind of describers or descriptions. The unholy, unrighteous world is characterized by sexual immorality, by idolatry, by adultery, by men who practice homosexuality and women who practice homosexuality. By thievery, by greediness, by drunkenness, by revilers and swindlers, by those who strike their fathers and mothers, by murderers and enslavers and liars and perjurers, and those who do whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The world is wicked and corrupt. The world is dead and continually decaying. The world is utterly unlovable. And yet our text tells us that God so loves the world. What? That word so there speaks of both manner and measure. God God so loved the world, or as some translations have it, in this way he loved the world. This is what love looked like. We'll see that in a second. It's the manner in which he loved. But that word so also speaks to the measure of God's love. God's love is immense for this wicked world. Why? Well, because he is love. And God can't help himself but be himself. And so because God himself is vast beyond all measure, because he is immeasurably great, so all because he has immeasurable greatness, so then everything he possesses is also immeasurably great. God is all that he possesses, so his love as his presence is vast beyond all measure. From eternity past, the the three persons in the Godhead, the the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, shared and expressed limitless love between themselves. You, You know, eternity has been filled with limitless love that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have shared between each other forever. There was never any lack of love. But out of the overflow of that immense love, God created a world. He created humanity to share and show that love to. And even as fallen as the world is now, God wants us to know that his love has not faltered. God wants us to know his heart. I mean, God is the one who put this in the Bible. Jesus is the one speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, 16, and he's telling him what God is like. God loves. God so loves the world. If you don't believe that, then why are you not? Jesus himself, who is God's very son, is testifying about God. God so loves the world. Do you believe that God God loves this morning? Maybe you need the reminder because some of the early morning experiences this morning already have you doubting. it. You woke up without getting the gifts that you wanted. You woke up this morning celebrating Christmas without the husband or the wife that you dreamed about, without the ideal family that you thought would be yours by now. You woke up and and, and the darkness of depression has still resided over you. The anxiety of your your thoughts still keep racing. It does not seem like God really cares about you. Maybe all that you're missing is making you question if, if God is actually for you. If God's affections are actually towards you. Well, friends, let the Bible speak louder than your experiences. Let the Bible speak louder than your emotions this morning. The Bible shouts to us from John three sixteen in our hearts, that God so loves you yeah, that he gave. That he gave. That brings us to our second observation from this wonderful text. God gives. God gives. 25 years ago, marriage counselor gary chapman wrote what's become a wildly popular book entitled the five Lo- love languages many of you probably have read that book or at least have heard of the the reference to the book or to those five love languages the premise is that people with different personalities express love in different ways now, many of us always claim like you just don't know my love language that's your problem right even if we read the book we like look I am showing you love, you just tripping. What <laughs> goes on to talk about these five love languages? Some people have a love language that is defined or shown by acts of service. For others, their love language is, is words of affirmation. That's what they want. They want to be called sweetheart or to give, be given compliments. For others, it's quality time. That's how you show me that you love me by, by, by your presence, by spending time with me. But still, to others, it's, it's personal touch. And for others, it's, it's, it's today, days like today, it's by receiving gifts. But John here records for us something of God's love language. All right. God's love language is not receiving gifts, but giving gifts. God demonstrates his love. God so loved, he, he loved the world in this way that he gave. Right. And friends, God gives the best gifts. I, I mean, look at what he gave. God didn't give a financial gift. He, he didn't cut a check in an infinite amount. God did not make a direct deposit into some universal earthly account because our greatest need was not a financial one. All right. God didn't give a medicinal gift, a once for all cure for all humanity's health problems, from leprosy and dropsy in times past to cancer and AIDS in our day. He did not give a medicinal gift because our greatest need was not a physical one. God didn't give an ecological gift, a clean air or clean energy, because our greatest need was not an environmental one. God didn't give a political gift, a political strategist or savvy statesman, because our greatest need was not a legislative one. God didn't give generic gifts of of goodness. Good cheer and pleasantness. The kind of things that Christmas is supposed to conjure up. God didn't just sprinkle some some heavenly hope uh, to make us feel better because our greatest need was not an emotional one. No, God gave his son. Because our greatest need was a spiritual one. And so God gave God. God the Father gave his one and only son begotten, not made, from God, from all eternity, of the same essence and the same nature as God the Father and God the Spirit, holy and perfect, good and compassionate as God the Father and God the Spirit, loving and merciful, slow to anger as God the Father and God the Spirit. God gave God the Son. God gave himself. God gave the best gift there was to give. But what did he give his son to do? God gave his son to live. To live on earth for us. To live the kind of life that we were supposed to live in perfect obedience to our heavenly father. Oh, friends, but the father did not give his son a perfect environment in which to live in that perfect obedience. God's son was not born into the world with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born in the squalor and indignity of a stable. He was born from the womb of a woman who was as wicked as any other human who's ever lived. Friends, Mary was not sinless. But the sinless son of God became a man and inhabited Mary's sinful body for nine months. Till one night in Bethlehem, this woman pushed out from her womb, the savior of the world, to start living as a perfect human in the world. Every day, 385,000 babies are born. But no baby like this baby. Every day, 385,000 sinners are born. But this baby had no sin. He was the son of God who put on flesh. He had none of the sin and guilt passed down from Adam because he did not come from Adam's seed. He was conceived not by sinful man, but by the Holy Spirit who sanctified the human nature that the Son of God assumed in his incarnation. The curse of sin that spread from Adam for millennia as every baby broke from its mother's womb. That cycle was stunted when God gave his son to live. When God, as verse 17 says, sent his son into the world, there was something that stopped. The cycle of a baby born and a sinner born was stopped when the son of God was born. God gave his son to live, not like Adam and every baby born since Adam in sin, but to live as the true and better Adam, perfect and holy to the Lord. to live every second, every millisecond of his 33-year life without a single stain of sin and full of every ounce of righteousness. You see, Jesus didn't just stay away from sin. He lived a righteous life. He pursued fellowship with his heavenly father. He retreated to go pray and spend time with the Lord. He, He cared for and showed kindness to others. He submitted to human authority. He kept the law the righteous life that we failed to live, God gave Jesus to fulfill in living. God gave his son to live. And God gave his only son to die. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this verse, uh, talked about the the noble causes for which people may willingly give up their children. People might Send away a a son or a daughter, even if they're their only beloved children, they might send away their son or daughter off to college or graduate school for a number of years. The sting of separation is tempered by the prestigious work they've sent their child child off to pursue. People might give their son into military or civil service to serve the emperor or the king, to serve the country. That's a noble thing, a dignified thing to give your child to. But God so loved the world that he sent his son ultimately to die and to die in the most despicable and undignified manner and for the most despicable and undignified people. God chiefly sent his son into the world to die for sinners like you and me. Friends, wash out of your minds a pristine, whitewashed Christmas. Despite what the song says, it was not a clean, clear, silent night. It was a scene like every other birth scene, full of blood, full of cries, full of moans. It was a humiliating scene. Here was the Son of God born in a feeding trough for animals. It was a birth scene that foreshadowed a death scene. Also full of blood, full of cries, full of moaning. Also a humiliating scene. As the Son of God was treated like an animal led to the slaughter. Hung on a cross like a worthless criminal. Left to die and put on display for all to see like some deer head on a hunter's wall. Testifying to the hunter's power and, and savagery. The death of Christ on a humiliating cross on a public Roman road was meant to testify to Rome's power and savagery. This is what happens to anyone who rebels against Rome's rule. The death of Christ on a cross was meant to testify to the incredible influence of the religious powers of the day. This is what happens to any Jew who dares undermine the religious authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. But John 3.16 tells us that ultimately the death of Christ testifies to the deep, deep, deep love of God. Christ's death was not the result of his radicalized views or his risky moves. It wasn't the result of powerful human authorities exercising their lethal power. Christ died because that's what God gave him to do. That's what God sent him to do. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, he gave his only son to die. That's what Jesus himself knew. You know, I can't stand some of these movies or miniseries that come on TV about Jesus because they all treat Jesus like he was some clueless figure, right, just trying to figure out life as he goes along, unaware of his purpose. But that is not how the Bible presents Jesus. When Jesus stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate, later on in this this same book of John, with Pilate seemingly having the power to either spare Jesus' life or to give it up, to have it taken. Listen to what Jesus says to him in John chapter 18, verse 37. Jesus Christ, the son of God, tells him, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. Jesus knew why he was born and why he came into the world, to die. You can't stop or, or prevent this. You can't start or, or keep this going, Pilate. I know why I came. The Father has sent me to die. Text like John 3.16, train us. And when you think about Christmas, don't just fix your eyes on the cradle of baby Jesus. Focus your eyes and your minds on the cross of bloody Jesus. Don't just look at Christ's birth as amazing as it was. Look at Christ's death that that birth was leading to. Look at the God who lovingly gave, and look at the Son who lovingly came to be crushed for you and me, that we might be saved. That leads us to the next marvelous truth of this passage. Number three, God saves. The text tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That God gave his son to die wasn't simply a a marvelous point in history. It was for a marvelous purpose that we might not perish, that we might be saved. You know, perishing is the natural property for all people. It's what naturally belongs to all of us. We are all perishing and destined to perish, to die physically and experience an eternal death as well in torment in hell. Death is the penalty of sin, and as all sin, so all die. It's what God promised to the first man, Adam. Way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he told him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely perish. That promise became reality when Adam and Eve rebelled against God sin and death came into the world and have dominated ever since. Everybody sins and everybody dies. And everybody is deserving of eternal death and damnation for our sins against an eternally good God. But God sent Jesus into the world that we might not perish, but rather have eternal life. Jesus came to reverse the curse. To rescue people from a sure and certain reality of judgment and instead to give them eternal life. You know, sometimes it's represented as if, as if Jesus is, is the problem. As if formal religion and exclusive beliefs in God, in, in a figure like Jesus, is what's so problematic with society. And some people say, I, I can never believe in a God who's so wrathful that he send people to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. You know, one of the issues with that is that it presents the world as okay without God. And as if it's his intervention that's messed things up. But friends, the world is already messed up. Right. The world is already doomed. Notice verse 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't need to. The world was already condemned. Friends, we don't live on neutral turf. We're not playing on the positive side of the field. We are in deficit. Every single person living on the planet is living on death row. All of us are all condemned because all of us have sinned and are all awaiting a final punishment. It's not God's intervention that was the problem. It's us who are the problem. I mean, we need to ask ourselves, uh, imagine if God did not intervene. All All would be destined to eternity in hell. All of us would be headed to hell, and rightly so, for all have sinned, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. Imagine if God did not intervene. There would be no help and no hope. For who else could save us? Everybody else is in the same terrible predicament, sinners destined to hell like all of us. Thank God for his intervention in the form of Christ's incarnation. God sent his son into the world not to condemn, not to cast us eternally into hell's pits, not to repay us as our sins deserve, not to pour out his burning hot wrath against rebels like us. God sent his son into the world that the world might be saved through him and through him alone. There is salvation found in no one else under heaven but in Christ alone. Brother Warner said, Muhammad can't save you. Buddha can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And God wasn't stingy. He didn't say only Jesus can save you, but I'm keeping Jesus here. No, God, no, Jesus only can save you. And so God sent the only Savior that you and I could need. Only Jesus can save you because nobody else can do or has done what Jesus has done. This man lived a perfect life for us. This man was not any other man. This man was God Himself. He was there in heaven being worshiped by multitudes of angels, and then He stepped down into the humiliating world to suffer and die for us. There's never been a greater humiliation, there's never been a greater degradation. The Son of God came and he died for our sins in our place as our substitute. That's what all the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. That's what all the Old Testament prophecies were pointing to. There was going to be one who would be the Lamb of God, who was God himself. The Jews had a concept of the Messiah. They had a concept of the Savior. They had a concept that God would rescue them. They had no concept that God himself would be the Messiah and come to earth to rescue us this sinless one, came to bear our sins in his body. And worse than just bearing our sins, this sinless one came to bear the full blast of God's wrath for us. He drank the entire cup of God's wrath for us. He died for us. But the Bible tells us that God raised him up showing that his death was sufficient payment for all our sins, and that risen Jesus now commands all of us to turn from our sins and believe on him that we might be saved and have everlasting, eternal, never-ending life. Which leads into what we must do. Number four, we must believe. Notice God, all God has done for you in Christ. And giving his only son to the world that we might not die but, but live forever with him. But the question is, how do we get in on it? How do we receive this great gift of salvation? Well, you don't have to pay for it. I mean, then it would no longer be a gift. I mean, kids, imagine you you're getting a gift this morning and, and then your parents saying, yeah, that was $49.99. So, when you get the rest of that Christmas money today, I'm going to need you to pay me back. No, no, gifts don't work like that. You, you don't pay to get them. Right. Neither do you get this great gift of salvation by being good, right. but by doing good works, by being a good person, because nobody is good enough. When we talked about the world is instead totally bad, totally tainted with sin. And friends, God is. Not just a bigger version of Santa. Kids, if you believe in Santa, I'm sorry I might blow this up for you, but God is not just a a bigger, realer version of Santa deciding to to give gifts based on who's been naughty or nice. If you've done good this year, then you get good gifts. If you've been bad, you get a piece of coal. No, God holds out this all-precious gift of salvation to all. To all who are all bad. You don't get this gift by being good, but by believing in the only one who is good. The only one who has lived a good life for you and who laid down that life for you. You don't have to be good. You have to trust in the one who was for you. Trusting in God's son, Jesus Christ. God gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. Age is not a factor. All right. Young people, you are not too young to believe in Jesus Christ, yes. to trust him to be your all-sufficient Savior. Today you must turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Today you can have a better gift than anything you open this morning or will open this afternoon. You can have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus Amen. should not perish but have eternal life. Your past is not a factor. That's pretty amazing. Friends, all the bad you've done, amazingly, does not disqualify you from being saved. Others might condemn you for your past, for your prison record, for how many people you slept with, how many things you've done wrong, how many things you've said this past week. Others might condemn you for all the wrongs you've done. Your family might see you as a perpetual, perpetual screw-up. You're like the black sheep in the family. Never done any, anything right and not expecting you to do anything right. Your family and your friends might totally write you off. Your own conscience might constantly convict you and convince you that you are too bad to be saved. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn you. Everyone else condemns you, but God did not send his son into the world to condemn you. Rather, he sent his son into the world to save sinners. All the bad things you've done don't disqualify you from being saved. Those sins actually qualify you. All those great sins qualify you to experience and to have a greater salvation. And you can have it. Anyone can have it. Regardless of how old you are, regardless of what color you are, regardless of what you've done before, regardless of what you're thinking even now, you can have it by believing in God's Son. It's not belief like in Santa. It's not belief in like one day the commander's going to win the Super Bowl. (laughs) Kind of pie in the sky. There's no kind of tangible faith in it, right? No, it's a fixed, firm, trusting in, relying upon, depending upon, giving all that you are to it. It's a firm, fixed, relying upon Jesus Christ, the only son of God who came to earth to save you, to live and die and rise from the grave for you, to grant you eternal life. It's a total trusting in him. It's by believing that Christmas is about the Christ the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who came to the world to save it by its death, by his death and resurrection. How do you have that belief, you might be asking? I, I, I've heard these kind of messages. My life is kind of messed up. I know I need to trust in Jesus. How do I, how do I trust Jesus? Ask him for it. Ask Jesus to save you. Ask God for the gift of faith. None of us conjured up. Ask God for the gift of faith and friends he will give it. The Bible tells us, how will he who did not spare his own son that also with him graciously give us all things? You see, if God was willing to give his son to be slaughtered, will he not give you the faith to believe in that son? You see, anyone in the world can have salvation, but you know what? Jesus also gets the world when we believe in him. Jesus gets glory because God saves sinners who once hated Jesus and now exalts His Son by saying, "Those sinners now love you." You can't conjure up that kind of faith on your own, Friends, salvation is a gift, and God freely gives it. Ask Him for it. You want to talk more about what that looks like? Talk to anyone around you after service. We'd be happy to tell you about the gift of salvation. And when you believe, there's eternal life. In the future, one day we will live forever and ever and ever with the Lord. But that life starts even now. If you're a Christian, you know that, don't you? I mean, it's been a joy the last few weeks hearing our brothers and sisters in the Lord share testimonies of, of how the Lord has brought them from death to life. What their lives used to look like before Jesus Christ came into it. Before Jesus Christ broke into their world and brought them life. Before they trusted in Jesus, they looked a certain way. But now they trust in Jesus and life looks totally different. If you're a Christian, Christmas is personal to you. Amen. Amen. You don't read this verse and just say, God sent his son into the world to, to save. God sent his son into the world to save you. So that anyone who believes in our perish, you are a believer. God had you on his mind when he sent his son to suffer and die for you on the cross. Jesus had names. He had Nicole and Warner and Kevin and Joe. He had Chris. He had Zaina. He had names on the cross. And the son of God didn't just kind of die and shed his blood indiscriminately. Jesus Christ came into the world to save you. He came to give you a personalized gift. He came to give you one of those gifts like, you know, you, you, my wife wants all these gifts that, that, that I can't get at the last minute. Right? She got to have her name on like a coffee mug or something. It was like the 25th hour. And I'm scrambling like, well, how can I? Jesus didn't come last minute and like, oh, let me come and add some names. No, he came into the world already with names. And he died on the cross for you. He was thinking about you. He didn't just come into the world like, we'll, we'll see what happens. He came into the world to make something happen. He came into the world to save you. Christmas is personal. To you. From the old you. Didn't we hear about some of those testimonies from the old you that used to love sin and live in it lavishly. Now you can't stand it. You hate it when you're still sinning. You want to live for your Savior. You've seen a great change, even though life is more cheerful now. You got hard marriages and troublesome children. You got problems at work. You got physical problems. Life isn't all cheerful, but you can still have real joy right now because you have a bright tomorrow. Because eternal life with Christ is yours. It's already started. You're changing. You see a newness of life, and one day it will be completed. And, friends, we are not unique. Jesus Christ came into the world to save and transform the lives and eternal face of millions, perhaps billions of people. He is the amazing gift that God has given to the world that keeps on giving. The question is, how will you respond? Will you seize and savor and forever be satisfied by Christ the the Savior? Or or will you shun God's gift of salvation by, by celebrating this holiday but keeping Christ out of Christmas. And those are the only two choices, embracing Christ or rejecting Christ. And there are only two options. Notice there's eternal life or eternal perishing. Rejecting Christ only brings with it eternal damnation and endless sorrow. But that former option of embracing Jesus as your only hope, as your all-sufficient Savior, leads to everlasting joy. You can know that joy today by believing in Jesus. You can help others know that joy today. Family members and friends you might have dinner with later or talk to after service. You can help others know that joy by introducing them to Jesus and calling them to believe in Jesus. And you can forever know that joy yourself. If you've already believed in Jesus. To keep on believing in Jesus. God so loved the world. He gave his only son. That whoever believes and keeps on believing should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world, in order that you and me might be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ, for the amazing gift of salvation in him. Oh, Lord, let him be our greatest treasure today. Take away the the heart's affections for lesser things and make our hearts love Jesus more. Seeing how Jesus loved us. seeing how you, the Father, loved us by sending your Son to die on the cross for us to save us from our sins. Lord, we pray that if anyone among us doesn't know you, doesn't know your Son, you would use this message, you would use this service, you would use the singing, you would use our influence in their lives, oh Lord, to convict, to challenge, and to change hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name, for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Amen.